The Evolution Channel is sponsored by Eternal Gold Beauty, the most advanced skincare line in the world. Awaken your skin to aging in reverse at eternalgoldbeauty.com today. You're listening to The Frequency of Creativity with Melinda Har Curley. Welcome everyone to The Frequency of Creativity, where we are at the intersection of energy and art. I'm your host, Melinda Har Curley, and to see how I energize paintings through nature and light, sign up for my newsletter at melindaharcurley.com. You'll see my latest work, upcoming exhibits, and the occasional giveaways of small prints. You'll also get the latest links to the podcast, melindaharcurley.com. Today, I'm so excited to be hosting on the podcast, Claudia Kalb, who is the number one New York Times bestselling author. Welcome, Claudia. Thank you, Melinda. Great to be here. Um, Claudia, our title for our talk today is Spark, How Creative Genius Ignites. And for this talk, we're going to focus on Picasso and Grandma Moses. Now, you have uh, your book that you just released. Claudia, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So the book is called Spark, How Genius Ignites from Child Prodigies to Late Bloomers. And in the book, I explore through the stories of 12 individuals, well-known people from Yo-Yo Ma and Shirley Temple to Isaac Newton, um, all the way up to Maya Angelou and Eleanor Roosevelt, a series of people from different eras and different livelihoods about when their moments of inspiration sparked. So whether it was as a prodigy um, as in the case of, of Yo-Yo Ma or Picasso, who we're going to talk about, all the way up to late bloomers, including people like Grandma Moses, who we're also going to talk about, where these moments happen at very different ages in the arc of life. So I explore that and try to understand why for some people does genius or inspiration strike early and why for others does it happen much later. Claudia, in reading the book, in the introduction you say, that creativity is based on curiosity, openness to new experiences, imagination, and inventiveness. Share with us, what is the role of creativity in genius? It's such a critical role. I mean, when I did this reporting, there's so much interesting science, a lot of it just new and developing on how we understand genius. And by talking to the experts, boiled it down to really four elements. Intelligence of some kind, whether it it might be a very high IQ, but it also might be a musical intelligence or an artistic intelligence. Creativity being one of the very core features, number two. You must have that ability to think outside of the box, to be open to new experience, to use your imagination in a really groundbreaking way. Um, third element being kind of grit and perseverance, and the fourth being just good fortune and luck. But creativity really stands out as one of the great features of genius because it's the way people bring new ideas alive. You know, and um, we're going to have to go to a short break right now. When we get back, 
Um, I can't think of anyone better to start with than Picasso. But before we break, Claudia, please share with us where we can find out more about you and also the book. Sure. Well, the best place is my website, which is claudiacalb.com, C-L-A-U-D-I-A-K-A-L-B.com. There's plenty of information there, links to buy the book and also information about me, um, other stories I've worked on in this same area, um, and just materials that might be interesting to, to listeners. Okay, stay with us and we'll be back and we're going to look so much more closely at creative genius through Picasso and Grandma Moses. The Superpower Experience goes way beyond the podcast. Listeners can connect with hosts and one another inside the Superpower Universe Plus membership. Members get access to high vibe connections, Superpower masterclasses, and much, much more. Don't wait another moment to step into your superpowers. Go to superpowerexperts.com and sign up today. We're back with the Frequency of Creativity, where we are at the intersection of energy and art. Claudia, in the book, you say that prodigies, that art prodigies specifically, do well in local processing. And what local processing means is that these art prodigies are able to discern parts of a whole and identify small shapes within a large shape. Then later in the book, you quote Emily Bouvard from the Picasso Museum in Paris. And she says that Picasso's best quality is his assemblage, which means to assemble art from the multitudes. Can you talk about how Picasso seemed to deconstruct objects and then reassemble them in unexpected and sometimes alarming ways? Right. Well, I love that you connect these two passages in the book because the woman, Ellen Winner, who is the scientist who studied prodigies and the way their minds work, um, talks about how they are able to create this very realistic art because they see forms in a way that other children don't. So they can create the shape of an apple and the contour of an apple um, in a way that looks very real. And that ability to create realistic art makes them stand out, distinguishes them from other um, young people who were creating art. And when you look at Picasso, he was trained in that ability to see things realistically and also had an eye for it. He was trained to create a very realistic piece of art. But as his experience grew and he was able to draw on his own memories and the experiences that, that he saw in his mind and in his life, what he saw on the seashore, what he saw in a gallery, he would use those pieces of information to be able to then recreate what might have been realistic in a new way. So he's deconstructing, as you say, the, the reality of the image. And we can all imagine those faces um, that were shattered by Picasso in a way to create something new that struck us in a different way and that challenged us to see it in a new way. Um, and, and then you alluded to uh, Picasso, uh, his memory of things, then later on in the book that you say that Picasso had such an excellent memory. And I think your exact quote is um, that he 
remembers everything, that he doesn't forget anything. And that later on when he paints, he's able to call up references from his childhood and work those into a painting. Right. He had an exceptional memory for these kinds of details. Um, I interviewed his grandson, Bernard, in Spain, in Malaga, where he was born and spent his early childhood. And he, we sat outside in a courtyard and he pointed to all of these influences that he says stayed with Picasso throughout his life, the color of the stone, the mix of religions that sort of infiltrated the town, the color of the flowers on the trees, the purple flowers, the smell of the oranges, and that all of this throughout his life, he went to the bullfights a lot. These elements just stayed with him. And he looked in his experiences for visual um, things that he, that, that he put kind of in a storehouse in his mind and that he then drew on later. And then he was also very able to identify art in something that nobody else would see. For example, he created the bull's head sculpture, which he created out of a bicycle seat and a pair of handlebars that were in a junk pile. He saw art um, through his visual references um, in a new way, in a way nobody else could. And that's one of the groundbreaking features of, of genius that you see beyond what anybody else sees. And also with talking about that, he draws art from all aspects of his life. And you also quote that art is like breathing, like art is not separate from him. It is so who he is. Right. It really, I mean, his son, Claude, told me it just is who he is. It just was there from the very beginning. And he worked incessantly. He worked till all hours in the night. It consumed him. It was who he was. And, and this is how he continued to produce art until, you know, through a very long life from very early age in his childhood to the age of 90. And you also uh, quote Claude as saying, in referring to Picasso, he went on to destroy everything we were accustomed to and created a new vision for everyone. Well, you think about the, the period of art that came before Impressionism. You have that, that luminous quality of painting, the light, the beautiful colors and palettes, and it's very pleasing to the eye. And then you think about Picasso who and the others who came in his era who took a completely different approach um, and, you know, we have to talk about Demoiselle d'Avignon, which is his, his groundbreaking piece um, created when he was in his 20s, which um, has these figures whose faces are splintered and fractured. He took influences that he saw from African art and Iberian sculpture and used those to create his new form of art in Cubism. So that's how he created it. That's what Claude's saying. He destroyed everything we knew, this kind of idea that what the movements in art up until that point, especially, you know, jumping up from Impressionism could not be more different than Picasso's Cubist approach. And it really turned things upside down. And it really shocked people when it first came out. And um, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon is considered one of the, um, you know, most accomplished paintings of the 20th century. Um, and then also in the book, you talk about it, and I found this so interesting, when you look at the painting because of the fractured faces, that when we're young and almost from birth, we learn about the world through looking at faces. So by his fracturing and just reorganizing the face, 
was so dramatically different for us from something that we learned at such a young age. Right. I mean, it goes back to infancy when babies recognize human faces. And I think it's, that's, that's comforting to us. That's, that's what's familiar. Um, and he just, you know, dared to go beyond and in a way that really broke the mold and, and, um, challenged us as viewers. And also later on in the book, you say that, um, Picasso, he didn't take any commission work. He painted exactly what he wanted to paint and he didn't care about what anyone thought. He did not paint to please the public. And he also said that style is an artist's worst enemy. Right. He was really all about um, envisioning something new and creating for the sake of the art, not the person um, who might buy it. It was all about how to, to, re-envision the way we see and that's what he did in his in his artwork throughout the decades and and his artwork changed over the course of his life because he continued to reinvent himself he just never stopped um and then also what i found fascinating are the scientific studies uh, there are two studies that you cite in the book and they took brain scans of viewers when they were looking at art. The first study I want to talk about is by Edward Vessel. And then he focuses on the interaction of the viewer, like an outward looking, and then an, also an inner contemplation. Can you talk right. more about this study, what they found? Yeah, it's a really interesting emerging area called neuroaesthetics, and it's looking at the interaction between the viewer and the artwork. So in Edward Vessel's work, they asked people to rate um, how they responded to paintings, whether they were moved, and it didn't have to be moved in an entirely positive way. It could be that somebody reacted to a piece of art in a very kind of visceral way. Um, and these were not well-known pieces of art. They would have been something people probably hadn't seen before. And although the participants reacted differently to the art, not everybody liked the same thing, they all showed in their brains, and they use something called um, fMRI, which looks at how blood flow goes through the brain and where, where it's kind of um, activating parts of the brain, that it activated something called the default mode network, which is very scientific word, um, and right now being very much studied and still explored, but it's kind of a network of places in the brain that interact and it's known to be a network that allows us to be internal, to kind of go inside our thoughts, to be um, kind of uh, contemplative. And so what he discovered is that people, while being activated visually by the piece of art, their brains were also turning inward and thinking about um, that art in a more contemplative way. So it was a really fascinating look at what kind of brain um, networks or places are involved in viewing art. And what stimulates the brain when we see something that we're interested in? You know, Claudia, and listening to you as from an artist's perspective, like, of course, uh, people's brains are stimulated when they're looking at art. And I love that science has now documented that. Then the second study I really found fascinating was the by a Nobel laureate, Eric Kendall. And he's asserting through studies that the viewer becomes an active participant in the art. Right. I love um, Dr. Kandel, who's a Nobel Prize winner and such an interesting scientist, but also an art lover and collector. 
um, talks about how art um, is not a passive experience. So when we go to a gallery and we look at it, um, we're not just staring visually at something, we're interacting with it in a creative way. And I'm just going to, you know, mention a couple of things in his, the way he views it. One is that he says, there's a bottom up approach to looking at art, which means that we're sort of reacting in a way that our brains are um, already kind of prepared for over many, many, many years of, of human life that we're prepared to see things like perspective and size and light of something that we're visualizing. But then he says there's a part of it that's top down and the top down, Kandel says, is the way we bring our own experience to the piece of art, our personal um, memories and experiences and who we are. And it's especially interesting in abstract art um, that people bring their own personal experience to understand the art, because you might look at a piece of abstract art very, very simplistically and say, what does that mean to the viewer? But if you look at it um, more personally and use that top-down thinking, what does that mean to me and how do my experiences help me interpret this piece of art? Um, that's what Kendall says is going on when we look at abstract art. And he says it's a really, really interactive, creative process, and that makes it more interesting for the viewer. So I love thinking about that in perspective, you know, in, in, in respect to Picasso's work, which can really challenge us. Um, he sort of reflects our own um, challenges in those kind of splintered and kind of different um, looks that may not be pleasing, but may be challenging the way that we can identify with as human beings. Yeah. And then later on the book, I believe you say that viewers identify with the disharmony that they see in Picasso's work. Right, right. We're all, you know, we all have that. It's not unique to any one person. So it's it's a connection that is very real. And again, as an abstract artist myself, uh, we had a show and we called it, You Are What You See. Right. <laughs> you know, just mirrors what Kendall is doing. And I love the coming together of art and science that science is now able to document through studies what we all, what I believed. So I love the coming together of the two. It's great. It's a really interesting area. It is. Now we're going to pivot to um, Grandma Moses. And I, Grandma Moses is the perfect counterpoint to Picasso on every level. Um, she started to paint in her 70s. She had her first New York exhibit at the age of 80. She painted what everyone wanted to see. And her paintings pleased and charmed everyone. And she had a style. And she painted these idealized New England country scenes that everyone found so endearing of both her and her work. And her discovery was merely by happenstance. So can you share with us how Grandma Moses was discovered in her 70s? Right. So Grandma Moses, um, unlike Picasso, who was really, um, his, his, his life and career was cultivated by a family that um, embraced him and, and raised him to be an artist in a way. Grandma Moses was born on a farm. She was, she married a farmer. She had a lot of work to do as a um, wife, as a farm um, person working on the farm as a mother of initially 10 children, five of whom 
died. So throughout the decades of her early part of midlife, early in midlife, she was really fulfilling those roles. And it wasn't until her 70s, as you mentioned, she started turning to art to have a purpose. She was somebody who um, working on the farm was always busy. She wanted to do something with her hands. She had liked creating art, but never really done much of it. So she starts working in her 70s and she starts, she takes it to a country fair, um, doesn't get much attention, her jam sells, but not her art. <laughs> then she takes it down to a to a drugstore. She, she lives in Eagle Bridge, New York, a tiny little town in upstate New York. She takes it down to Hoosick Falls, which is the little um, area nearby the town with the drugstore and the owner allows her to put it, her paintings in the drugstore window. And just by chance, a dealer, sort of a traveling um, collector comes by, sees these paintings and really likes them and takes them to New York to try to interest a New York dealer. And it takes a while because Grandma Moses by then was so much older than the artist that any dealer would want to take on. Um, but he interests Otto Kalir. And I love the idea that Otto Kalir was an immigrant. He fled the Nazis in Austria and he came to the United States and he had a vision of art that was in a way more open than some of the um, more conventional dealers in, in New York. And he was open and receptive to her work. And he took her on and her first show was at 80 and she continued on for 20 years. She had an international career. Yeah. And so at the time of her death at 101, she had painted a thousand paintings and her work was replicated in fabrics, wallpaper, Christmas cards that all sold in the millions. And at the time of her death, she had a huge international following. Right. It's, it's just remarkable. Her work, um, and I think this is such an interesting parallel with Picasso, was all about being um, going back to the past, being retrospective about her life. That's the way she used her life, not from necessarily collecting those images as Picasso did from all his experiences and, f and putting them into a, a piece of work, creating a new vision. She was almost reliving, replicating the experiences she had um, in her life that were very comforting, um, for the most part, very, very, um, very holistic and sort of calming scenes of sugar tapping the, the trees and going out in the sleds and working on the farm. Um, these landscapes that were very pleasing. And I went to the museum and, and um, that collects a lot of her work in Vermont. And, you know, somebody was standing there crying in front of one of her pieces saying, this just makes me feel so happy. It takes me back to a better time. And so where, where the one hand you have people standing in front of a Picasso saying, what does this mean? It's, it's making me nervous. I don't understand these splintered faces. Whereas, and then she is showing you something that you kind of wish you could kind of just walk right into. So I love, I love the sort of contrast, but she was um, highly accomplished in her um, artistic career, supported by Otto Kalir in a way that was absolutely um, full on um, going to make her a success. And he, he was able to do that. And she was able to do that because she produced so much work and she had so many people who fell in love with it. And I love you mentioned in the book that she was very good friends with uh, Norman Rockwell. Yeah, you could just see the association of the two. And also you talk about the book, how this was her lived experience. So she wasn't taking memories from child. Well, she was, but this was her lived experience. And she did not deconstruct things and reassemble them like Picasso. This is what she knew. This is her life. And yeah. she 
she communicated that so beautifully. Yes. And interestingly, just another contrast, she was really self-taught as compared to Picasso, who went through the academies and was taught by his father early on, who was a painter. Grandma Moses, whose name, full name is Anna Mary Robertson Moses. Um, But she was self-taught and and really explored um, her own life and also scenes that interestingly she picked up. She collected beautiful scenes um, and she had a box full of them and she would sometimes use those for inspiration. But it was always a similar kind of idea, the landscapes, the life, the sort of um, very, very um, reassuring qualities of life um, that, that she went to and revisited. And towards the end of the book, you say that when the mind is open to new experiences, creativity thrives no matter one's age. And then you give a lot of examples of people later on in life who were very successful, who were open. Right. I, I find that I loved collecting these examples in the book, and I, and I had a few of them. Um, in different realms, you know, think about Diana Nyad, who swam from Cuba to Florida, you know, at the age of 64. Um, people who created new things. I'm looking at um, Harry Bernstein, wrote a memoir when he was 96, which was acclaimed. Um, Elliot Carter, a composer, wrote a new piece of music for his 100th birthday celebration at Carnegie Hall. And the list goes on. There are people who just take on these new endeavors at these later stages in life, they've got experience, they've got um, the ability to, to still think in a new way. I mean, there's interesting science showing that even as adults, we have neurons that continue to grow. It's not all over in childhood. So I think that adds a whole element of, you know, you got a longer lifespan now, we can use it um, and, and experience those kinds of inspirations much later in life than we think we can. And then also at the end of the book, you say um, that sometimes creativity improves with age among artists. Like, for example, Picasso's highest bid work is the work that he did at 25 and 26, while Grandma Moses's work, obviously, when, you know, she was almost 100 years old. Right. So it's there's no absolute for sure not an art that you have to be a certain age to create your your best work or the work that gets most noticed in Picasso's case he was in his 20s when he created that famous um, painting um, but Grandma Moses as you said was in the latter decades and so there's there's no way to put a marker on that or put a time stamp on any of it it can happen at very different points in, a, in an artist's career. And Claudia, um, as we come to the end of our conversation, I want to end it as you do in the book by talking about the greatest creative genius at all time that will never be surpassed. And it's impossible to condense Leonardo in a few minutes. But for me as an artist, um, what I notice about Leonardo, and there's so much to honor, But one aspect is that he studied so many disciplines and this wide range of knowledge he was able to use to inform his paintings, which set his paintings apart from everyone else because he was so well-versed in so many areas that he used that information as a lens to paint through, 
which is one of the reasons he's the world, one of the world's greatest painters. Right. And I think what's even um, so interesting about Leonardo is that he created thousands of drawings and sketches. This is the way he understood the world um, and everything he studies from botany to, you know, um, astronomy to underwater scuba suits he starts designing. I mean, the man had an absolute um, boundless, endless curiosity that he pursued. Um, but I don't think people realize that he only left behind fewer than 20 paintings, that the real bulk of his work was in his drawings. And that's where he explored the world. And that's where he understood the world. The paintings, many of them were unfinished because it was the process of understanding that was more important to him than the completed piece of art. Um, and I think that speaks to this quality of genius that he was, he was just his boundless curiosity, his observational ability. He could see and understand um, as he, as he studied things incessantly and, and every little thing, the leaf of a plant to a person's eye. Um, and he just never stopped. And I think that his ability to do that and his interest in doing that is remarkable. I don't think anyone comes close in that way. But I think he, he had, you know, there are lessons in Leonardo for everybody else. But his genius, when you think about it now, it's been 500 years since he died. It just never stops. The legacy of Leonardo's genius is still influencing people today. Um, it goes on and it lives on for generations. And I love the quote. Um, and this quote is by Martin Clayton, who's a head of prints and drawings of the Royal Collection that you uh, went to see in reference in the book. And Clayton says, what Leonardo can teach us today is that by looking well beyond your own discipline, you get inspiration. You get a sense of possibility, a way of seeing that can ignite wonder in us all. Well, I can't say it better than that. It's a wonderful um, way to conclude this conversation because it really does speak to that um, genius of Leonardo. And, and, you know, that I think transfers to so many people can learn from it and, and uh, create their own genius. Claudia, thank you so much for being with us today. And I just loved all the topics that we touched on and especially Picasso and Grandma Moses enjoying the connection between them both. So before we um, leave, please share with us one more time where we can find more information out about you and your book. Well, thanks to you for, for allowing me to talk about this. I love the idea that I was able to share kind of the bookends of Spark. Um, Picasso is the first chapter, Grandma Moses is the last, and there's so much in between. So I appreciate it. It's, it's a wonderful way to think about um, my research. The book is Spark, How Genius Ignites, From Child Prodigies to Late Bloomers. And you can find out much more about it on my website. That's the best place to go. Claudia Kalb, C-L-A-U-D-I-A-K-A-L-B, one word, dot com. And there you can buy it. I also want to offer anybody who's interested in um, having a signed book plate. So it's about as close as we get to an in-person signature on a book. I'm happy to um, send those out to people who would like to put them in their books. And you can do that on my website. You can request those. You'll see a spot for doing that. So please come visit. Thank you, Claudia. And thank you for being with us on the frequency of creativity, where we are at the intersection of energy and art. To see how I energize paintings through nature and light, sign up for my newsletter at melindaharcurley.com. Now, be your own creative genius today. 
Thank you for listening to the Superpower Network. Go now to superpowerexperts.com to unlock your superpowers and change your life today.